You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Martin, it feels like we've turned the corner somewhat in our podcast series. We've come off the back of Stephen Shaw talking about birth cap last week with Professor Selena Bartlett. Fascinating podcast and this week we're diving back into the higher education sector but we are starting to look at those who have uh, demonstrated that innovation and change has real value we certainly are Carl. I, I like you found the conversation with Stephen and the commentary around it with selena really really interesting last week uh, because it it changed you, you know you talked on earlier episodes about having growth mindsets and being prepared to be open to be curious and to learn and I learned so much from Stephen's views about a topic that I'd know nothing about and learned so much more about Selena's interpretation of it from a different point of view that it's it's just got my mind racing about universities. And I, it makes me think about the whole approach and the standard cycle of five-year strategic planning ideas and coming up with a strategy that looks the same as everyone else's and having working groups and approval processes to get on and do much the same as what you've always done. It it looks really silly when you place it in a different perspective that's generated by the sort of things that Stephen had to say and the sort of interpretations of it that Selena helped us make. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a positive lens on this one. I do think it's silly, but I think we're talking to an audience where learning is central to their being. So I'm really hopeful that we're going to see some fast acting uh, recognition of what's required here and a big shift uh, at scale. Well, for then us to have that birth gap, Stephen Shaw, Selena experience and to have it followed by a vice chancellor of a very well-known global university, University of Waterloo in Canada, and its new president and vice chancellor, Vivek Gohl, set out about developing a new strategy, not for, you know, there's so many strategies that are called the University of X 2027 or 2028 because they've been looking five years ahead. Mm. He's looking at what Waterloo at 100 will look like. Mm. He's looking 35 years ahead. It's unheard of in strategic planning in universities. I remember when we interviewed um, Debbie Terry of University of Queensland and mm. how, how shocked I was that she was putting out a 10-year plan Mm. which at the time she explained mm. was partly to coincide with the award of the Brisbane Olympics to Southeast mm. Queensland in 2032. Mm. That seemed revolutionary at the time. But for vice-chancellors who are typically appointed on five-year rolling contracts to look 35 years ahead, I've never, never heard of that before. And I think it brings into play a completely different perspective on what we learn and the learning setting of universities than most of the time we contemplate. Why don't we head straight to Vivek now, just after this short message from our sponsors. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm joined today on HeadX by Professor Vivek Gohl. 
Vivek has been the President and Vice-Chancellor at the University of Waterloo in Canada for 18 months, having previously been at the University of Toronto for 32 years. Vivek, welcome to HEDEX. Great to be here. And Vivek, 32 years, as I said in that introduction, associated with what I think would be widely seen as Canada's leading research university, followed now by around one and a half years after a move to what is often cited as Canada's, and dare I say, one of the world's most innovative industry-engaged university. How, how have you found that adjustment from one environment to another? Uh, on the one hand, it certainly is a very different uh, type of institution. In certain degrees, there's a lot of commonality, and in other areas, there's still some distinct uh, elements. But Waterloo has a quite fascinating history in how it was set yeah. up by and, re and in response to, as I understand, it's yeah. the, the needs of a local industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about its origins and what they've meant to the way Waterloo has evolved in this position yeah. now? The need for was a different kind of institution in terms of how students learned and gained experience, usually five to six work terms of four months apiece. Uh, so students are graduating with significant work experience, progressing through their time here uh, in a range of industry settings. And uh, it was not uh, necessarily a unique introduction. There were institutions that had done co-op before 1957, but the scale at which Waterloo did it, integrating it right into the curriculum, into the programs, um, and at this point in time, we offer uh, co-op in about 90% of our programs. And uh, we have about 30,000 work terms a year uh, with close to 7,000 employers. It almost feels to me like um, Waterloo set off on the trajectory it did by having a purpose born out of its local context. And I've been discussing with many vice chancellors and presidents over recent episodes of this podcast, the idea that universities might increasingly have a commitment to a particular purpose as they set strategies and develop cultures that provide a point of differentiation. Do you subscribe to the idea of universities each having differentiated purposes? Universities do tend to start to become alike. And, um, you know, a phrase that is often used is universities are isomorphic. They all chase after the same thing. And I, I think it's possible to excel, but be differentiated. Waterloo has differentiated in a number of dimensions. We've already talked about co-op. Um, we've also differentiated by having clear tracks for innovation entrepreneurship um, and for our students to be able to follow their ambitions and their ideas. The other way in which Waterloo has distinguished and differentiated itself is actually in its academic structure. We have a standalone faculty of math that includes math, computer science, and statistics. You're now inviting all to engage in a visioning exercise to paint a picture of what Waterloo might be like in 35 years' time, which is when it turns 100 years old. Why did you do that rather than undertake the more typical five to 10 year strategic planning cycle? And what's been the response that is different to having initiated that from that that you've seen in planning exercises in other institutions? 
my understanding of the history of why many organizations have landed on five years is it goes back to the Soviet era. That interval was chosen because that was the length of time it took to build an industrial plant, even to create a new program in, in, in those kinds of intervals. Um, and it, the kind of change, if you want to talk about institutional direction, uh, often takes change in culture, change in um, organization. And to do that in less than five years is, is very difficult. So being able to step back and take a longer term perspective on where you want to go as an institution, what changes you want to make, help a shorter term operational plan. So I'll frame it up. The other thing is, uh, I think in terms of the time period that we're in, it's very similar to the time period in the mid to late 1950s were when the university was founded. Um, if we think of everything going on in the world, because we have to deal with the social and human side. And so it's a good time as we have these crises ahead of us to think about what our role institution like Waterloo, which has been innovative and um, has very different kinds of structure. We have to bring researchers and faculty members from all across our university to address the challenges ahead. Um, in terms of the response in our community, it's been wonderful. Uh, you know, I think people have resonated. I think people have found five-year planning exercises to become a little bit of a treadmill. You don't start to see much change happening yet because it takes time to make change in universities. And then you start to work on the next plan. It's, it's, um, I found it fascinating reading your introduction to your community for your visioning exercise of Waterloo at 100, which... I believe I'm right in saying you describe Waterloo as being a university for the future, taking risks and challenging conventions. And you, you've introduced some of them there and and, and your um, visioning exercises introduction goes into them further. Perhaps what you just said there with regard to climate change, the interconnect, interconnected futures for, for society, for sustainability, for health, for technology, as you've mentioned, and the economy become the um, ingredients of risk-taking, convention-challenging, and thinking of the future. I, I know your journey isn't complete in this visioning exercise, but what is starting to take shape as any distinctive point of difference for Waterloo as a university for the future? Yeah, so on those uh, futures that we described, and uh, as you mentioned, we have societal futures, um, the increasing diversity in populations, um, you know, sustainable futures. There's certainly the environmental impact, but there's also the, uh, if you think of the framework of the sustainable development goals, broader sustainability agendas. In terms of technologies, you know, we have a lot of technical solutions to the challenges, but we often unleash the technologies in the world without thinking through what the implications are going to be. And uh, uh, we've had all sorts of things over the last few decades, uh, particularly things like um, social media, which have been enabled through the internet, so on to happen that we're struggling to deal with. And while we could say we couldn't have imagined that would happen if we gave everyone access to the internet all the time from devices they could carry in their pocket. There were humanists who were thinking about what a completely connected world will look like, including 
Marshall McLuhan, professor of English. And I give that as an example, like we have people in our institutions that think about these things that, you know, we can learn from history. We can learn from philosophy. We can learn from so many different disciplines as we're thinking about these technologies, as we're putting these technologies out there or as we're framing them. And, uh, and so, and the economic futures is, uh, is a very simple one uh, in the sense that, again, our world is changing. We've had a very good run for the last 75 or so years since uh, the second world war of growing economies, globalization. And there's all sorts of reasons why that's not going to continue. Um, and in many of our countries, and I think the same is true for Australia as is for Canada, the growth rates that we see ahead are not going to be like what we've had. And if we want to sustain ourselves, if we want to address the challenges that we have in areas like society, health, and uh, the environment, we're going to have to really fix our productivity challenges and how we can generate wealth, how we generate it in inclusive and equitable way. And so what's emerged out of our discussions as we think of each of these five areas, we started off looking at them as individual areas. And that really speaks to the complexity of the world that we live in. And what really resonated in our community and got people excited is our potential to work at the intersections. And so, bringing people together from you know, all six of our faculties across a broad range of disciplines. Uh, and to give an example, like if we look at something like uh, robotics and how it might be applied in the health system, you gotta think about the social elements. So whether it's robots um, working with clinicians or robots working directly to support patients or caregivers, how they interact with people, that's actually gonna be the critical challenge. Um, the, developing the technology is, is obviously an immense amount of work, but it doesn't end with developing the technologies. And so it's how we work at those intersections. And the challenge for us as an institution is we're structured around our departments, around our disciplines. And those intersections don't care much for those old structures. And that's what I see ahead in terms of how we're going to work, how we're going to change the way in which we work. That's a fascinating and um, really thoughtful and long-term view about the what, what a business of a university might be in terms of issues it might address in its research and its taught programs and, yeah. and how it might go about it. I, I wonder if I can extend that, that conversation a little bit with a couple of things that you've hinted at several times already in that... Um, one of the consequences that it occurred to me of you taking a much longer term view of the future than a more conventional, whether it's Soviet style or whatever it is, five or 10 year plan, yeah. its origins, yeah. is that we start to expose ourselves to long term geopolitical and demographic trends much more um, that are less evident with those shorter term plans and strategies. And given the long term trend towards increased aging, declining birth rates in many parts of the world, if if not all of them by that time. When Waterloo is 100, the age profiles of school leavers and older lifelong learners 
all the evidence seems to point towards that being in much different proportion and tra trajectory to uh, to what it is right now when we've been making decisions on campus experiences, campuses, and and what we offer to the students that come to us now. Did, are, did, are you envisaging in taking this Waterloo at 135 year out view that you need to position Waterloo as a university for the very different demographic that we'll see in Ontario, between parts of Ontario, and between parts of the world in 2058. Absolutely. So first of all, uh, you're right that the demographic trends here and globally are, are on the same path, that we will have declining birth rates, and uh, so fewer uh, people of the age that will come uh, to post-secondary education. The changes will be differential across the world, right? There will be the declines are ha already starting to happen. You know, we take countries like Japan, so many of the European countries, some of the Atlantic provinces have already had those uh, demographic changes that uh, are being forecast for our region. So, so we certainly do have to plan for that change, and I think that is a a major shift for our institutions because, again, we've had many decades of constant growth, a very small proportion of the population went to university. And then following the Second World War, we had a period of very rapid growth in participation rates, along with uh, certainly in um, U US and Canada, many parts of Europe, uh, the, the baby boom that followed the uh, Second World War. And then we've had the echo boom and so on. So we've had both increasing population as well as always been periods of growth. And now we're entering a period where we're going to have constraints. But the counterpoint to that is I think we're going to see a dramatic change in how and when people want to learn. And so, you know, I think the model of people coming four or five years and then they're done is not going to be the model going forward. And so what we need to adapt to is, first of all, what is it that people are going to want? Maybe it's going to be shorter bursts of learning throughout their, their lives. And, you know, we've seen this pattern of people have gone from you get one job, you stick with it for life to people have many, many careers. And so maybe they're going to have intervals of education in between their careers or as they transition or while they're working in a particular job their employers will be making opportunities for them to continue to learn, to upskill, reskill what they're doing. And so we have been spending time thinking about what this means. We've uh, reinvigorated uh, our traditional continuing education or professional development program. We call it WattSpeed. Um, it is set up to work with external partners, um, employers, industry associations, governments to meet skilled training needs of people that are already out there. And I think increasingly, we're gonna be developing programming that will take content that may be being repurposed from undergraduate education to this type of upskilling. The other thing that we've clearly identified and uh, will be laid out in our final paper is we do see that there is going to be an in-person element to what we do. As much as 
there will be people who will take advantage of online tools and technologies. There will be institutions that will provide fully remote opportunities, be much more accessible for people. Um, we see that there is going to be a group that will be interested in having that experience, having those interactions that only happen in person. And so uh, I think that isn't going to be an important evolution and not every institution will necessarily go down exactly the same path. We see using technology to improve access, to improve quality, but we also see ourselves inventing the kinds of experiences that can only happen when you're in a room or on a field trip with others and learning from each other, learning from your instructors and, in, and, and learning those skills that happen in person. Oh, There's a very um, thoughtful um, set of observations about long-term population change and what a response of somewhere that's, somewhere that's come from the place that Waterloo has on its yeah. journey to date might um, move ahead in the long-term period ahead that you're working on. I, I guess you've already commented on this, but I wonder if I can encourage you to think about this from the point of view of other universities. You've told us why you thought it was important to set a long-term vision for Waterloo as a university now, but what would you see as the advantages for other global universities to similarly take that longer-term strategic approach? Well, I think it goes to, um, if you, you really want to be differentiated and and have distinct strengths that you're known for, it does take a longer term perspective. Um, you know, I, I see vision documents that have five or 10 year timeframes and um, they'll say, you know, something like we'll be the, in the top five in these areas in five years. That's, not realistic in unless you have massive, massive infusion of resources um, and uh, uh, you just hire up a bunch of people to drive your metrics up in a particular set of areas. And, and we have seen that done in, in certain institutions. Um, but if, if you really want to make the change within your own organization, your own culture, it's going to take more than a short uh, period of time. And so taking the time to develop the longer term vision. And again, I, I want to be very clear. It doesn't mean it takes away the need to do the short term planning, but having your shorter term intervals informed by constantly looking at that long term vision and seeing how you're tracking towards it. Um, so I think uh, it, it is something that should be helpful for many other institutions. But one thing that struck me when I visited the University of Waterloo some years ago, Vivek, was how, how strong a sense that I got from the many different people I spoke to about a level of a level of shared ownership of the mission of the institution and what I might describe as as a strong organization wide culture. And I, I also you know, it's not hard to visit Waterloo and uh, see the the um, imagery around you and experience the the areas and the interactions with people and, and even reading about the place to get a very strong sense of what the brand position of the university has been. 
when you've set the Waterloo at 100 vision out of all of this consultation and planning process, you're, as you've already said, going to have operational planning activities to implement that and move that forward. And I wonder if you could tell us what their, what those operational plans, how they might be flavoured by this taking a long-term view and points in particular to any work that you see being appropriate in that culture development and brand positioning and communication space. One of the things that I see is that um, we need to change. You know, co-op education model has to change because the world of work is changing. You know, so the co-op model and the model of work integrated learning has to evolve. Um, so in each of the, our differentiators, we certainly see some change coming, but the overall directions will stay the same. The application areas that we see coming, going back to those futures, uh, we certainly want people to develop things at the intersection. So that's going to involve some of the changes in the way in which we work. And so while Waterloo's a young institution, it has grown to be like many other institutions. Um, it has grown to, you know, let's use the term silos where people are in their departments and their faculties, and um, we don't always easily bring them together. Um, we don't have mechanisms that reward people for working with external partners, working on large collaborative programs, um, doing applied work that involves knowledge mobilization because we have traditional academic metrics being used to evaluate people. So as we think about the culture change, it is about how do we reorient the uh, organization so that it maintains that set of um, aspirations that you saw in the people that you met with when you visited, but also enables them to do work in ways that are different from the ways that they've done traditionally, to measure outcomes in ways that are different uh, than they've done traditionally. And that, uh, you know, that's going to require significant change within the institution. But it's also, I think, going to require us to take some leadership and work with other institutions around the world. So if we think about how we assess and reward our faculty, and you know, we do processes which are based on getting reviews, peer reviews, if we don't actually think about how those peer reviews get done, what criteria are, are used, we're going to still continue to have people incentive to do what they've always done, write grants, publish papers. Even though, you know, I, I meet with so many of our faculty who want to do more collaborative work, who want to do impactful work, but they say, I can't do this because that's not what I get evaluated on. That's not what I get rewarded for. And, uh, and so we also see, you know, participating in exercises like uh, DORA, the Declaration on Research Assessment or the Leiden Manifesto, um, so how do we find peer institutions who are interested in looking at the same types of culture and value changes in how academics are assessed? Just, just bringing the interview to a close, Vivek, it's been fascinating to have someone taking yeah. such a long-term view to share their yeah. thoughts on the HeadX podcast and platform with us. Um, it strikes me that you're 
you're having a very measured approach to trying to do things differently and take as measured risks. I'm not sure if you'd use that title for them, but um, mm -hmm. an OECD report last year stated that one of the greatest risks right now at this point in time to global universities is their inability to take risks. And I wonder if you would feel that you are taking measured risks in thinking of the future of the University of Waterloo. And if so, are you enjoying working in that environment after so long in quite a different yeah. environment? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, part of the issue is if you don't take a long term time horizon and you're doing five year plans or shorter term plans, it's very hard to take risks. Uh, and I think that's why that, that OECD observation is there. Um, and so, you know, if we say, you know, by the, in 35 years, here's what we're going to be known for. We can be more ambitious and uh, take a greater risk uh, because we know we have more time to get there. Um, and I think that's what's important for universities is like recognizing the scale at which and being realistic about the time frames under which we can make change. But we also, you know, we do not have cultures that are prepared to accept failure because taking risk requires us to accept that not everything will work out. And, you know, I think um, governments in general, public sector organizations in general are not able to take that kind of risk. And I think, I like your phrase, we have to take measured risks. We have to um, take risk scenarios that are really important to us, where the benefit will be really valuable for our students and for our uh, the public that we serve. Um, we can't just go off uh, on tangents or uh, move. You know, you use uh, the famous motto from Facebook: "Move fast and break things." Um, so we have to find the right spot for us to take risks. <laughs> Well, I don't sense that you're breaking too many things at the moment. And uh, Vivek, for being such an interesting guest, guest on Headaches and sharing such a novel approach to thinking about the future of our universities with a time horizon that is, for me, unprecedented in, in university leadership. Thank you for sharing your measured risks yeah. with us. We, we hope you'll succeed greatly and we hope Waterloo the, will be a university that continues to thrive as a university for the future. And thank you for the very interesting questions. Well, that's Vivek, very interesting and a very different uh, frame of reference and, and way of doing things. When it comes to, you know, Vivek was talking about culture change and, and this is about changing the way that we perceive a brand, its image and the way that it operates. There's no greater way to affect change than to, there to be a burning platform for want of better expression, you know, the sense of needing to, uh, to have a reason or rationale for that something that you mentioned in the recording yourself was the biggest risk to the higher education sector being uh, the lack of risk or lack of uh, courage, is it? Or lack of uh, gumption to be able to face into these things and, and try and do things a little bit differently. I was sort of left with that as a, as a key message from that interview. Yeah, well, and, and the perspective on whether it's taking a risk or not, I can't help but think that that's severely um, impacted by whether you're looking five years ahead or 35 years ahead. I mean, mm. the risk, if you're trying to get to the next contract renewal that will happen three and a half years into a five-year contract is probably not upsetting the apple cart and, and rocking the boat. Mm. Risk, if you're looking 35 years ahead with an inevitable change in 
in birth rates and population and structural change in your student population, as we saw last week in Stephen Shaw's comments. And if you're looking at what on earth generative AI will look like for universities, ways of operating and what people need to learn to be industry industry relevant as graduates in 35 years of time, then the risk of doing nothing is enormous. Well, I come back to that that quote from the futurist Thomas Frey said in 2040, the largest company in the world will be a learning-based internet company that doesn't exist today. And I think when I talk to data scientists about AI and culture readiness for organizations, which is where I spend most of my time, how ready are they to adopt culture? They all say to me, well, let's base it off the customer experience, which is actually the right thing to say. They should be saying, what is the customer or the student experience need to be or going to be? And how do we then adapt and adopt adopt um, change to our culture? The reality is when I pose that question with some of Australia's leading data scientists, they say, we don't know. We don't know yet. No one knows. So all we can do is be ready to uh, be adaptive, be innovative, be open to change and be prepared to take risk. Well, the, the, the not knowing is um, we don't know everything about anything, really, do we? And not knowing how things will be in five years time is risky enough. But thinking that you might know what it's going to be like in 35 years time or 20 years time or whatever the longer time horizon is just appears inevitably futile and foolish that you would believe that you could know that far into the future about just about anything impacting businesses at the moment and including in our universities. I, I, th I think this whole episode with Vivek shows me that here we are with one of one of the world's most innovative universities in terms of industry engagement, that's just taking a time horizon to reconceive how its strategy should play out in the future in a more dynamic world. And just the, just the, the, the decision to take that time horizon is a risk in itself that is creating so many opportunities to reconceive that university, which immediately to me makes every other university that's not doing that look really foolish. Yeah, I think it does, doesn't it? I, you know, that, but they would argue, of course, uh, probably from the condition perspective around the patterns of what's worked in the, in the past, uh, that they they will, you know, they've they've got a brand image and they, it's, it's established on certain foundations and it's about doubling down on, on some of those foundations. I think that's the biggest risk in itself. I think Vivek does a great job in painting a picture to say we can do this differently and there's certain things that we know do need to change and we're going to have a stab at it. I imagine in his strategic planning process, they're not signing off and locking down uh, strategy and tactics for you know 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. They certainly wouldn't be doing that. They'd be looking conceptually at what are likely to be the needs of our primary, you know, secondary, tertiary audiences for that matter. What partnerships do we need? How do we need to evolve experience? What does that mean for us culturally? And then working back from there. It's not too different to what we do with organizations, you know, big big grocery chains like Coles and insurance firms like Bupa, the first thing we do is we forecast five to seven years ahead customer experience. And we have to use futurists, economists, and experience experts to do that. But then we work back. And where we work back from is we start with culture. Do we actually have the ways of working and the way of perceiving the needs to deliver the strategy correctly? And if not, let's start there. Because whatever we build on top of that, be it bricks and mortar or a service experience or a, a um, tech stack or whatever you, whatever you want to look at, if you don't have the culture that's supporting that, that in itself is futile. So I think I can say quite comfortably, I don't believe we have the culture in higher education from my experience, I think, albeit quite limited, uh, that, that will support the level and the rate of um, rapid change that's going to come at us in the next sort of six to 
six to 12 months, if not beyond. Well, very interesting that you should use the definition there, the culture in higher education, because it, for me, that really illustrates the fact that there's two dimensions to culture in universities in their settings, which I presume is the same if it's retail organizations or insurance companies in their sectors, mm. in that developing the culture in a single institution is one thing. But if you operate in the context of a higher education ecosystem that has its own cultural norms, you've got guardrails and you've got you've got constraints on how cultural plays can play out. And so just, let me just illustrate that with the, the conversation that Vivek and I had, um, that they are an industry engaged university. They are trying to both make the, the, the talk and the walk regarding focusing on industry engagement, a big part of their differentiation. But if you, if you are hiring academics and your academics are performing in a broader setting where Industry engagement is given is given lip service as something that's important, but you get promoted for something else. Mm. Then, then there's great cultural dissonance in the message and in the actual cultural symbols. To use words that I know are important to you, Carl, mm. in how that plays out. So, so Vivek, for instance, talked a lot about the engagement of the University of Waterloo in something called DORA, the Declaration of Research Assessment which has been a, a number of North, North American universities coming together to try and change the way that research and its impact is genuinely measured beyond the easier to measure things like citation rates and impact factors in journals and, you know, number of downloads and number of publications. Mm. And this sort of gets us back to the conversation we had around the Casey Tour episode from Singapore Institute of Technology a little while ago. So many of the cultural settings in the higher education system generally and universities within it are determined for those systems and those institutions by university rankings. Mm. University rankings to be internationally comparable have to be based on benchmark data that is easy to generate, that is internationally translatable around... Nobel Prizes at one end of the spectrum and numbers of publications and citation rates are a different part of, of, of that measure. And to be bold enough and to be clear enough to say, even though the system's like that, we're opting out of those measures of what academic excellence means. And we're going to measure it by things that are important to us. And we're going to try and impact the broader ecosystem of culture on that is the sort of determined leadership that can really bring about change. I, I'm, I'm all for universities um, and their leaders in isolation and groups of them working together to act towards setting the rules, setting the measures, setting the goalposts around what they think is important and not a rankings company. When you do get into culture and cultural language and what consultants like myself love to say, some of it's quite meaningful, actually quite meaningful. It was surprise, surprise, but... The, the idea of what gets measured gets done is something that we say all day long. So, you know, sh show us where you spend your time and money and we'll show you your culture. That's sort of what where we get to. And you hear Vivek here talking about, you know, if you're going to change your culture, change the game. All of these things are spot on in this instance. And to what effect or what to what end? Why is it important? Well, I, I've said this before on this podcast and anywhere else that for anyone will listen to me is, the higher education sector in Australia is underperforming in terms of its relevance and capability to support industry. There's no doubt about that. I've never seen in my entire career, 23 years, whatever it might be, working in C-suite consultancy, someone say to me, listen, we should engage X university to support us. No one's saying it. 
because they're probably too busy, to your point, looking for citations and, and journal impact. They're not actually demonstrating that, yeah, we've got the capability, which they actually do. You know, if you look at who they go to, they go to the professional services firms that may or may not have that capability. They certainly have some good intellectual um, horsepower. But, you know, universities and business schools are set up really to problem solve some of the key problems that these industries are facing. And yet we're not going there because we don't really see them as that relevant. That that comment, Carl, is I'm sure one that many in the sector will have some would would have some responses to that of where the blame lies to that and where the solutions lie. I think we have to put aside the the question of blame and all work together to find solutions through partnership. And you know, there's so much out of this episode and some of our recent episodes, which for me is out of sector and out of Australia validation and affirmation of some of the things that are in our head headex universities accord submission mm. we're arguing for more differentiation of institutions and in a particular play in the regional space we're arguing for lifelong learning strategies embracing all parts of the vet tafe higher education provider basis we're arguing for employers to work alongside institutions as businesses and as communities and government organizations in taking responsibility for making part of the investment in and focusing on the needs for skills and competence in future graduates. And we're talking about research and innovation needing to be a partnership with, with businesses that value it because they're part of it and they've helped shape it rather than just being the recipients of any commercialization play that a very few universities might succeeding with very major ventures i mean I, I i see this episode as i'm bound to see it, this episode and all episodes as complete validation of a radically different way forward to come out of the university's accord in the basic parameters of how we set up higher education which i don't think are going to be served by university rankings absolutely look martin thank you what a what a a fire-fueled episode this has been thanks so much for sharing your views vivek was wonderful and i know we've got a host of terrific guests joining us shortly on the podcast. That's all we have time for on this episode of Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.